When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 100, and we are recording on October 3rd. I'm Amanda Nelson, and I'm here with Jen Northington, and we are coming to you from Book Riot. I'm doing jazz hands. You it's can't our tell. centennial. <laughs> it is. It's our centennial. How bananas is that? <laughs> we made it to 100, Amanda. We made it. We did And it. we only talked about Sorcerer to the Crown like four times <laughs> out of those 100 episodes. I think that shows great restraint. It really does. So, you know, gird yourself, guys. Yes, yeah. It's, it's coming back. Oh, talk about speaking of that, should I mention mm-hmm. the bingo yeah, yeah. card? Okay. Yeah. So we have commissioned from our fabulous designer, Scott, a special get booked bingo card in honor of our 100th episode. (laughs) And you will see some things that you will probably recognize on it. Um, So we will put a link to that PDF in the show notes. Um, There's nothing to do aside from just be entertained and or use it on future episodes. Um, (laughs) Feel free to note unto us when you have achieved bingo. (laughs) Um, Creating this was really um, enlightening and (laughs) revealed how how memeable we are. We we know a lot about our ourselves now chilly is the center square Mm -hmm. all right what you reading I gave myself a reading project I don't really have time for reading projects anymore but I miss doing them and so um, I decided that I was going to read through Nisi Shaw's reading list for her crash course in black science fiction that she put out like forever ago yeah I'll drop a link to it Um, it's a really interesting list and the very first book on it is Blake or the Huts of America by Martin R. Delaney which was written like in you know the eight, like I want to say the early 1860s, and it's it, so it's written by a black man while slavery was still legal, and it's about a family where the wife has been like sold to someone else uh, through no fault of her own, obviously, um, while the husband is away, and he comes back and finds his wife is gone, and he's like, well, you know, <laughs> f this, like I, I will now lead a revolt. Um, I'm only a, maybe. I don't know, less than 100 pages in. It's like a little slow going because it's written very densely and it, and it was written in the 1860s. So that style is very different. But um, it's, 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 I mean, it's going to be, it's, it's already very compelling, obviously. And like, I'm super interested to see, because she also wrote sort of posts about these books. Um, so once I've read it, I'm going to go and read what she wrote about it in her crash course. So that's kind of, I'm, I'm starting. It's going to take me like two years to get through <laughs> all of these books because I will not be able to read them on a regular schedule. But I'm excited that I'm, uh, that I have a reading project. I like having those. What about you? Me too. Yeah, I've been trying to do the like presidential biography reading oh. project and I've been stuck on John Adams for forever. <laughs> and I was recently, I, I know it's just whatever. But then I finished Hillary Clinton's book um, mm. two days ago and was like, obviously this is what I'm going to read for 45. Like I'm not going to read a biography because who cares? Um, but then I was thinking maybe instead of doing the presidential reading project, biography project, I will do like an adjacent interesting woman. Ooh. 
who is better. <laughs> like Abigail. I was just going to say, <laughs> Abigail is super compelling and fascinating. Yes, and better than John. Wait, she was just, just better. Just but better. I love John, but like right. Abigail is better. Anyway, so that's not what I'm reading right now. What I'm reading right now <laughs> is The Book of Separation by Tova Mervis, which is a memoir of a woman who was born and raised in a very tight-knit um, Orthodox Jewish community. She gets married, um, has three kids, and then... Not suddenly, but over the course of her marriage, realizes that the, this life is not for her. She's suffocating under all of the rules and the restrictions and the sexism and all of that. So she leaves. She leaves um, her Orthodox community. She leaves her husband. She gets a divorce. Um, her and her husband split custody. And it's it's about that process and how difficult it is when you're leaving a really restrictive religious community to, especially as a woman, to strike out on your own and what that means. Like you're not just losing your husband, you're also losing like every thing you've ever known essentially. And, um, you know, so I just started it. It's really, really moving and, um, crying, lots of crying happens with me, not just the person who's (laughs) writing the book, me, I'm doing a lot of crying. Um, it's, yeah, it's great. I really like it. Um, okay. So how the show works, as I mentioned, this is a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. So if you need a reading recommendation, uh, for whatever reason for yourself or your book club, Maybe you read Harry Potter and want to fill the void or you need a gift for somebody or whatever. You can send those to us and we'll answer them on the show. You can email your request to us at getbookedatbookwrite.com or you can drop them in the form at the bottom of the show notes on the site. If your question is time sensitive, please note that in the subject line of the email or the first line of your question if you use the form so we can try to get to it on time. Uh, We do sometimes respond to the questions via email instead of answering answering them on the show. If they're time sensitive or probably not going to get to them in time or we've already answered the question on air, then we will email you back. And that is how that works. Okay, so it's our 100th episode, and so we decided to go a little <laughs> off script. Um, and instead of answering any questions at all <laughs> this episode, we are just recommending books that we like. So this is the the Jen and Amanda go wild. But, I don't know. But we have a theme, though. We have a theme. We did, yes. So our theme is small presses and literature and translation. So we, we each have picked eight, I think, eight books um, to recommend to you, and they are all either from a small independent press or or literature and translation. Some of them are both. Um, and so before we roll in, I kind of wanted to maybe give like a definition of what a small press is. Because we when I asked the insiders on Slack uh, if they paid attention to the presses of the books that they read, most of them said no, which of course most readers don't care. Mm-hmm. Um, but in case people out there are like, what, what counts as a small press or like whatever, um, I thought we could give them a definition. Yeah. Okay, so... Um, but yeah, a small press is basically a press that's not owned by the big five. <laughs> so mo- almost every publisher that you encounter in your independent bookstore or out there in the world is an imprint of the big five, which are the big giant multinational corporations, uh, publishing houses, like Penguin Random House is one of the big five, and uh, uh, Hachette, Macmillan, Scholastic, uh, I'm missing one, but I don't remember what it is. Uh, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Thank you. Um, and so pretty much every publisher that you read is owned by one of those five companies. These now small and independent presses are presses that are not owned by these big conglomerates that operate independently uh, without these big multinationals behind them. Um, and because of that, they are often able to take more risks, publish, publish things that aren't necessarily as commercial um, because they don't have to answer to stockholders most of the time <laughs> and they can kind of do what they want. Um, so they can be more experimental a lot of them focus on publishing literature and translation because they're like doing a thing, like they're trying to do a thing to better the arts and uh, you know literacy of, of 
literature and translation in America and abroad. Um, so a lot of them have like missions like that. And some of them are nonprofit. Um, so they're, they're doing a lot of really good work. And so that's why we wanted to kind of focus on that for this episode. Um, and also literature and translation, because I'm sure most of you have heard that um, kind of famous statistic that only 3% of the books that are published in the U.S. every year are books in translation, and less than half of those are by women, which is a big problem. Um, literary xenophobia means that we're only reading kind of the same story over and over again, so we wanted to spend a little bit of time spotlighting books from other places. So that's what we're going to do. <laughs> Eventually, when I stop talking. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, I think, um, one of the things that's so weird about publishing is that when you're inside of it and you're, like, seeing the sausage being made, you know more about, like, the imprints. But even, like, I've worked in publishing since, you know, basically I graduated college in one form or another. And I still have trouble remembering which imprints are which publishers are which distributors. Like, it's all very confusing and tangled, and, like, sometimes it doesn't feel like it matters, um, and that's not true. Like, some imprints really do have sort of a, a hold on, you know, what they were organized to do, which was publish a specific kind of book. Like, when you think about Orbit Books, for example, um, which is N.K. Jemisin's publisher, or Tor Books, like, they have a very specific sort of goal with what they publish, but a lot of the publishers are, it's not that clear. Well, when you start to look at small presses, like you can really see what they're like, who, what the editors are looking for, what their values are. Like, it's, I think it's really interesting to start looking at those things. Um, I mean, obviously, I think it's interesting because yeah. books, but you <laughs> because know, we are nerds. It is. If you want to, like, you know, think more, if you're trying to think more critically and think more diversely or inclusively about the books that you're reading, this is one way to do that. So. Do you want to go ahead and give your first yes. pick and then I will do our first sponsor? Okay. Okay, that sounds good. So I actually picked a micro press for my first pick, which is even smaller than a small What's press. That? <laughs> <laughs> I know. So a micro press, usually what distinguishes a micro press from a small press is that they do limited runs. Like that's the most, uh, there are other differences, but on the most basic level, that it is that they do very limited runs of whatever, like maybe there are only 500 copies of the thing that they published. And I have to shout out Guillotine Press, um, which is the project of Sarah McCary, who is also a YA author published by like one of the big five. And you know, full disclosure, I know her, and we've hung out, and we're friends, and she's great. But they, I started following Guillotine before I knew her, um, and they do chapbooks, and a lot of them are nonfiction. And so, like a chapbook is literally like, it's it's like, well, these ones are forty eight pages. They are letter pressed, and she like hand sews them. I have been part of a hand sewing party for these. Like th it, it's that DIY and indie, and they're gorgeous. And she seeks out essays, um, usually from two people, one or two people per chapbook, and they're fantastic. Like some of these essays are things that I ha will never forget. Some of them are written by people who have now gone on to have huge careers um, in with major publishers. Like she, I don't know where she finds these people or how she <laughs> finds them, but she does an amazing job. And they also do um, broadsides occasionally. And I own several of them. Like they're up on my walls. So they're, they're a really good argument for like, I don't, I'm not really precious about books, but these are a thing of like physical beauty. And then the contents are amazing. So I'm going to leave a link in the show notes because it's really hard to Google because 
guillotine is not a word that is is specific to publishing, generally speaking. Um, but there will <laughs> mm-hmm. be a link in the show notes, and that's Guillotine Press. And it's just, they're so great. I love them. Okay, so before I give you my first pick, we're going to do our first sponsor, which is Because I Was a Girl, which is edited by Melissa De La Cruz. And so this show, this is a collection of books that showcases true stories from an inspiring roster of diverse women who are you know, young, old, age from like 10 up to age 88, about the obstacles that they faced because of their gender and the dreams that they've made come true despite those obstacles. Um, so it showcases over 30 stories. Uh, including um, stories from Hollywood heavy hitters like Kovajane Wallace, who I'm sure you all remember, uh, authors like Lippa Bray, uh, trailblazers in science and finance and art. Um, and as we all know, you know, this is a time in the fight for equality, for gender equality is as vital as ever. And so this book really works to highlight the advances of women's rights across the world and throughout history by celebrating trailblazing women, their struggles and their achievements. It's also like a physically really pretty book, like it's very beautifully designed. So it makes a really great gift, um, which, you know, we're coming up on gift giving season. So if there's like a young woman in your in your world or yourself uh, who you think would benefit <laughs> from <laughs> from reading some of these really inspirational stories about um you know women across the world and across time who have overcome really difficult challenges because they are uh female um then yeah go check that out so that's because i was a girl it's edited by melissa de la cruz okay so my first pick is slow days fast company the world the flesh and la by eve babbitts and this is from the new york review of books uh classics publisher and i really really like this publisher they publish some of like off the wall stuff. Um, they like pluck really, really great books out of potential obscurity and hi- re-highlight them or stuff that was uh, that sold really well when it was first published, but is maybe out of print. Um, and so Eve Babbitts was, if you've seen that famous painting of Duchamp playing chess with a naked woman, she is that naked woman. Ooh, nice. <laughs> yes. Um, so she was kind of like a an LA it girl in the 60s and 70s. She was a writer um, and obviously friends of very famous artists and other writers and movie stars. And so Slow Days Fast Company is a collection of sh- connected kind of short stories um, about LA in the 60s and 70s. And it's one of those like autobiographical kind of books where you're pretty sure this is fiction, but you're also pretty sure it's like 99% true stuff that's happened to Eve Babbitts that she maybe just doesn't want to admit happened to Eve Babbitts. Um, But they're all really interesting stories and they're about um, like celebrity adjacent people who she's befriended, like, you know, doing cocaine and that, what's that, what's that hotel that people live in in LA? Oh, um... I know this, and I yes, cannot. It's think like of right it. there, and it's I can't think of it. Famous. All of you know what I'm talking yeah, about. That, but that hotel, <laughs> that hotel that people live in in LA. So like, they're you know, she just wanders in with beautiful people, does a bunch of drugs, um, and then like leaving LA and going to Baker's Bakersville, Bakersfield. Bakersfield, yeah, where all the orchards are, um, and going grape picking, and like how completely weirded out she was by driving outside of LA. And it's supposed to be like a classic of California literature, which is a subgenre that exists. And I have never been to California. I know nothing about California or Los, An- Los Angeles now or in the 60s, but it was so interesting. And she just drops you, like she writes place really, really well. And it's a super short book. It's I might even call it a novella. It's like 150 pages. But you, you like, I put it down and was like, okay, I need some faux fur. I need to, like, <laughs> go walk around some, I don't, or drive around because it's not walkable, I guess. No. Nope. Like, 
go into a restaurant and, and, and be dramatic and, you know, look cynical and annoyed with everyone. <laughs> Prettily, like this is what suddenly I want to do. It was just I, su- I support thing. these goals. I know it sounded like a lot of fun. I mean, like without the drugs. Do but, you need you a know. wingman? Like I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> Jen and Amanda do. Help me. So yeah, go check that out. Um, it's super feminist and was really subversive. She's openly sexual. She's also bisexual. I'm pretty sure she never like says the word, but she writes about being in love with both men and women who are also in love with both men and women. So um, yeah, I just really liked it. So it's Slow Days, Fast Company by Eve Babbitt. I have to read that. I went to college in LA and like did a little driving around outside of of it of the city proper. And now I need to read that immediately. <laughs> yeah, I think you would really like it. It's It's like that dry, cynical wit of like a an artist who is really aware that she's being obnoxious. Mm, you know? Love it. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> All right. My first pick is one that I know Amanda also liked, I do believe. It is The Q by Basma Abdulaziz. Um, it is a novel in translation. Elizabeth Jaquette is the translator. And it was also uh, published by an independent press. It's a Melville House book. Um, and this book is so hard to describe. <laughs> yes, it <laughs> like, is. Like, it's really, because it really is, like, you know, the, the phrases Orwellian and Kafka-esque get tossed around, like, surrealism. And those are all accurate. It is a very strange and surreal plot. Um, but it takes place in contemporary Egypt, uh, like, sort of a twisted version of modern-day Egypt. And there is this, you know, bureaucracy um, housed in a building known as the Gate. And it is has taken over after a, an attempted uprising. Um, and everybody, like, in order to do anything in their daily lives, they have to queue up to get their paper stamped. But the gate never opens. Opens. So the queue just goes on forever. And all of these different people are like mixing and holding places and talking to each other. And so there's like, there's this part of it that's just very like, n- like mundane. It's just people standing in line. Like what is a <laughs> line that takes forever that goes on for days? What does that look like? But then there's another side of it where there's a man who was shot during the uprising and needs to get permission to remove a bullet that is lodged in his pelvis that is, like, going to kill him. Um, but they they have, like, you know, alternative facts. They have rewritten <laughs> the uprising as if it never happened. Um, and so how can he have been shot if this thing never happened? Like, there's no real bullet in you. And so he can't find a doc. He's trying to find a doctor who will take a bullet that the government says doesn't exist out of his body. Um, so it's really... It's it's dark, it's weird, it's twisty, um, and it's also kind of shockingly like not like almost boring in certain spots because nothing is happening. They're just waiting in line, which is the genius of it. Like it's that creepy like nothing is happening, but I'm really stressed out about it. Uh, <laughs> So, yeah, and I mean, it's definitely, there's another book called The Q by a Russian author whose name escapes me at the moment that is similar, sort of like back in Soviet Russia, it's that kind of story. So there's a tradition of this kind of book that I think is super interesting um, to see it coming from a woman of color um, taking this sort of classical form and doing something new with it. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, this book, when I got it, it was sent to me by a former bookstore 
her coworker who now works at Melville House. And the note just said, like, my name 1,600 times and then, like, read this. Um, <laughs> it's like, no, really, like, Jen, 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 you need to read this. And Chad was right. Chad is always right. Um, so that is The cue by Basma Abdulaziz. I'm rearranging my list here to oh, good. play off of how Jen, uh, Jen just talked, to, like, dark and weird and bizarre. And so I'm going in with another dark and weird oh, and bizarre one. Um, and so my second pick is Fever Dream by Samantha Schweblin, and it's translated by Megan McDowell. Um, this is from Riverhead, which is not a small press. It's a imprint of Penguin Random House, if you are interested in that sort of thing. Um, but Riverhead's a great, a great press uh, anyway. And so it's translated, let's see, um, Schweblin is from Argentina, so it's translated from Spanish. And this is just the weirdest book I've maybe ever read in my life. Like, I just don't. You're not going to know what's happening <laughs> when you're reading the actual book itself. When you go to Google, WTF just happened in the Fever Dream book that I just read. That's when you will find out what's going on through like interviews and stuff um, from the author. But during the book, you just got to let it like take you. Like you just got to go along for the ride. And it's short enough that like it's bearable. But it's so fascinating, interesting, and weird. So it's about a young woman named Amanda who is in a rural hospital clinic dying. Like, she is. That is not a spoiler. The book opens. She's dying. There's the boy named David who's sitting beside her. They are not related. Um, and he's trying to get her to remember what got her into that hospital. Like, it's very important to him that she re- recall all of the details of how she got there um, and what's happening to her child. And throughout the, the course of the story, you kind of find out why. Um, and so... I guess, should I should I say what's happening? Don't say it. Don't spoil okay, it. Okay, okay, okay. All right. Um, so it's a lot about like environmental violence, like corporate environmental violence and the ways in which that manifests itself in rural communities. But so that it's about that kind of. But then there's also like a little bit of witchery happening and like people who get sick having their souls split up in half and inserted into different bodies so that they can carry on um, and not you know, die basically from what's happened to them. Um, there's a lot of like worms, weird things happen to horses. Like it's just <laughs> strange. I know. I know. It's just, so if you are at all like into experimental literature or, um, unreliable narrators, or like if you deeply need to know exactly what's happening in a book, and this is not for you, <laughs> but if you can go with it to, to like see what an author is trying to do, um, it's like art kind of for art's sake, if that makes a lot, if that makes any sense. Like you're you're not here for the plot. You're here to see how talented Samantha Schweblin is and um and even and Megan McDowell, like how she managed to translate this thing without giving away what was going on it was just like fascinating. Um so it's like a, I don't know. It's just it's such an experiment and I, I really enjoyed it. I don't know if enjoyed is the right word. I was fascinated the whole time. <laughs> she had me on a hook. So that's Fever Dream by Samantha Schweblin, translated by Megan McDowell. All right, my next pick is one of the most important books I read in the last five years and probably will be one of the most important books I read in the past decade. Um, It is Citizen, an American Lyric by Claudia Rankin. And this book, if you didn't, if you missed hearing about it somehow, it was all over the place. They had to reprint it like a bajillion times. Um, This is sort of poetry and sort of prose, a little bit essays. Um, It is sort of a mixed, you know, bag in terms of like how you want to label it. But what it is, is Rankin looking at racial aggression, including microaggressions and some like very blatant aggressions um, in American culture and in her own personal life. And so she's talking about like 
being at the grocery store and, you know, getting asked for her ID for a check where her white friend did not get asked or, you know, being like talking to somebody on the phone and then showing up and then having them be weird at her because she didn't sound black on the phone, like, or, you know, how Serena Williams is treated in the media or how, you know, the soccer player um, Zinedine Zidane was treated in the media. Like all of these, and of course, um, the killings of young black men by police officers. Like these are all things that she talks about and, None of it is news. Like not like we all know, right, that these things happen or go on, but I mean because of like I'm a white girl and I know, but it it hadn't been brought home to me in this way somehow previous to me reading this book, which is, you know, to my own shame, but like it really did change the way that I think about the language that I use, um, that I, the way that I look at the language that other people use, particularly like word choice, like it really does dig that deep. And I think it's because she is a poet and an essayist that she can, you know, really drill into the way that we don't, that we don't, like we just don't do a good job or or that we deliberately choose certain words like either through ignorance or through deliberate um you know aggression say things it, it's just i like i'm losing my words now it's really it's really powerful and really incredible and i encourage you to read it if you have not picked it up yet, specifically if you're white. Like, I think a lot of black people will be like, yes, I'm, I experience this every day. Like, yeah. <laughs> I don't need to read a book about this, perhaps. Um, but I think if you are not black and this is not something that you have deeply considered before, or even if you have, like, pick it up. It's so important. It's so good. It's a beautiful book, too. Like, the design of the book is lovely. And the publisher, Grey Wolf, is not only an independent publisher, but they are a nonprofit. So, like, they aren't even out there to, like, make a buck. They are just pouring all of their money into publishing whatever books they find that they feel, like, will make a difference. Um, and they do a really good job. They have amazing books. So, yeah, that is Citizen, an American Lyric by Claudia Rankin. Okay, so my next pick is also from Grey Wolf Yay! because of everything that Jen just said. Grey Wolf is amazing. Um, and it is Border, A Journey to the Edge of Europe by Kapka Kasabova. And this is a new um, new release. It just came out this year. Uh, is that right? Yeah, it came out in September. And it's a work of narrative reporting that I am obsessed with. So I wanted to include a work of nonfiction here, and so this is my pick for that. Um, Kapka is a writer who is from Bulgaria, and uh, her family left Bulgaria, moved to New Zealand right after the fall of the Berlin Wall. So she spent most of her adulthood there. Um, and then she goes back to Bulgaria now um, to examine and write about the border that exists there between Bulgaria, Turkey, and Greece. Like, they have a shared um, border there. And when she was a child, that border zone was supposed to be, like, it was rumored to be easier to cross into the West from the Soviet Union at that point than it was at the Berlin Wall. And so there was, um, you know, a barbed wire, dead zone, um, soldiers, spies, um, lots of lots of violence, and... Um, torture, you know, the sort of things that happened at the border crossing areas of the of the Cold War. Um, so she goes back now to see what the effects of those uh, border crossing situations from the Cold War 
still have on the economy of those areas. She's also talking about, like, she goes all the way back to, like, the Thracian Empire, uh, which is, of course, like, the most ancient wow. of ancient history. Yeah. And that's where this was, like, the Thracian Empire. It's not even really an empire because they didn't have, like, a cohesive government system. But, like, the Thracians existed in this area of Bulgaria, Turkey, Greece. And she talks uh, so much about how the border between Asia and Europe which exists right there, is so made up mm. and like completely false. And she ties it into the current refugee crisis of people trying to cross that border and how that that point um, of the, you know, the global, uh, ge- global geography has always been um, a border between one area and another that, that that's more different than just like crossing a river or crossing a forest or whatever. Like it's always had this big mythical significance. Um, and she does go into some of the more like, uh, like witchy, creepy kind of aspects of living in a village in the middle of a deep, dark forest that's supposed to be, um, that's a, that has always been since time immemorial and continues to be a border that humans hang on to, but she ties it into like supernatural borders and the, the things that people who live on that border believe because of where they live. Um, and it's just like she's just tackling so many different ideas uh, while she in the in like the guise of what is essentially a travelogue. Like she goes back to the places where she grew up in Bulgaria and then travels into Turkey and into Greece. And of course, it is still really difficult to cross uh, those some of those borders, depending on which direction you're going in. Um, and so she has some run ins with border guards and some like old mobsters. She just encounters just the weirdest characters. And they're all I don't want to say quirky because like a Cold War border guard who probably tortured somebody and now lives in a village drinking himself to death out of guilt is not quirky, (laughs) but he's just, like, weird, like, just odd, and I don't know. It was so fascinating. And I'm, like, personally really fascinated with that area of the world because it is so, like, undefinable, and so I really, really enjoyed this book. So that's Border, A Journey to the Edge of Europe by Kapka Kasabova. I need to read that immediately. It's so good. Immediately. It's also very pretty. (laughs) Like, the book is very pretty. I mean, that sort of sounds like the perfect fall book. Okay, all right. Sorry. I'm, like, going to stop thinking about your picks and get my next one. (laughs) All right. Now for something completely different. Um, I picked Hadriana in All My Dreams by Renee DePestre. DePestre? I think that's how I'm going to say it. Um, It is in translation uh, by Kayama L. Glover. And Edwidge Danticat wrote the foreword, just FYI. And uh, DePester is a Haitian author um, who wrote, at the most basic level, it is a zombie story, except that's not at all what this is. So this is another one that's kind of hard to talk about because the first section of the book, you think you know what kind of book you're reading, and then it takes a turn. And then in the next two sections... It just like kind of, it just really shifts in a really amazing and wonderful way. But I'll tell you about the first section of the book. I'm not going to spoil the rest of it. So it takes place during Carnival in 1938 in this Haitian village uh, called Jacmel, which is a real place and is where the author is from. So like it's all based on his own personal memories of having lived in this tiny village. Um, And it is about a young French woman, Hadriana, who's going to marry a Haitian boy um, from a local, you know, prominent family. But on the morning of the wedding, she drinks something that is apparently like a potion and collapses at the altar. And so it appears that she has died literally giving her vows 
at this wedding. Um, and so, and, and it's during carnival. So they had planned this like really amazing intense celebration to follow the wedding, which is now sort of morphing into like a funeral slash celebration of death. Um, it's really sensual. It's sexual. It's very, like it's really intense that sequence of the book. It's like there's colors and people doing things and there's music and there's spirits and it's just like really complicated and like vibrant and you're just like, wow, this is a lot. Um, and then her body disappears. And so people are like, well, that sucks. She has been turned into a zombie. Um, <laughs> womp womp. <laughs> womp womp. And then the rest of the book continues. And I'm not going to tell you anything about that. Um, and I did not, I really didn't know what to expect from this book. Um, it's published by Akashic, which is a publisher I do pay attention to. Um, and I was looking for books in translation. I was looking for, you know, inclusive literature. So I picked it up basically because of that. And you think you know, like I think I know zombie stories. I do not know zombie stories like getting an actual like Haitian voodoo zombie story is like nothing that I had previously read it is just so I like it's lush like for lack of a better word this book is lush and it's also it's got dark moments it's got funny moments it's got silly moments there's a ton of sex on the page but like wow it's really I like you can tell or you're like okay it reached on to cut like I get it I get why you wrote the foreword to this book um and as you might expect because it's about Haiti like it's also about race in, in a real way so and it's about women and men it's about like you know sexism it's about it's about so many things so I def I encourage you to pick it up so that we can talk about the second two sections of the book because you just I don't want to spoil it um so that's Hadriana in All My Dreams by Renee DePest. Okay, um, my next pick is Blood of the Dawn by Claudia Salazar Jimenez. It's translated by Elizabeth Breyer, and it is from Deep Vellum, which is a publisher who focuses on books and translation, who I really like. And it's super short. I also would call this kind of a novella, and it takes place in the 80s in Peru, which is a period of time called The Shining Path, um, which is essentially a communist revolution. Um, not essentially, it was a communist revolution. Um, and it's told from the perspective of three different women whose lives kind of come together and then um, in, in really, really violent ways. Oh, and I should say that this is like, uh, I mean, it's just a really violent book. It's violent in every way that violence can possibly exist. Uh, bad things happen to kids. There's a lot of sexual violence. So consider yourself warned. Um, and so... It, this is a period of Peruvian history that I did not know anything about. I don't know anything about Peruvian history in general or specifically um, this area of communist military insurgency. Um, but there was violence on, on every side of this uh, conflict. So the communists went into the mountains and um, kind of were trying to both generate an insurrection from the indigenous people who work, work the land in the mountains, um, but when they didn't get cooperation, they really violently murdered them. And then, of course, there was a big military backlash um, because of that. So you're following these three women, one of whom is a member of the military insurgency. Uh, one of them is a journalist. And then one of them is an indigenous woman whose village is invaded by the uh, violent communists and who is um, repeatedly gang raped by them. And the thing that I really appreciated about this book is you don't History is very rarely told from the point of view of women. Military history is almost never told from the point of view of women. And even the history of 
uh, socialist or communist movements, which are supposed to include gender equality, uh, don't. And so, and it's very obvious <laughs> through like all of the sexual violence that the people experienced during this uh, revolution. And the author doesn't shy away from any of that. Like this does not feel like a political novel where she's taking a side. This feels like a novel where she's uh, talking about a really brutal and horrible period in her country's history with like just unflinching, no judgment, not, not no judgment. She's obviously judging the violence, but like, she's not vilifying the communists. She's not vilifying the military. She's vilifying everybody, um, because of the way that they treat each other and especially the women in their society. So, uh, it was just, it was very eye opening, and unlike anything I've ever read, historical fiction, nonfiction, any, from any genre. Um, so that's Blood of the Dawn by Claudia Salazar Jimenez, uh, translated by Elizabeth Breyer. All right. Should I do our second sponsor? Yeah. Let's do our second Yay, sponsor. Yay, we get to talk about this I book know. <laughs> I'm so, so Amanda and I have been waiting, is it like six months maybe? Something yes, like that. Yes. Like half of a year <laughs> to talk to you about this book. It's 27 Hours by Tristina Wright, um, published by Entangled Teen. We, it was the only, one of the two lines I stood in at BEA, Amanda and I stood in the line and we got our galley signed, but we'd already read it at that point. Like yeah. it's, 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 it goes back a ways. So this is a YA novel that if you send in a question about inclusive or like super fun or space YA, you're going to get recommended this book. Yeah. Um, it is, uh, it's like basically queer teens in outer space saving the world. Um, there are a bunch of main characters, including Rumor Mora, who is very, like has been raised to be a survivor. Um, he is really like... Uh, He's really conscientious and reliable because he has to be because they live on this planet where there are this, you know, other inhabitants, they call them the hellhounds, who are, they basically will kill you if you encounter them. So he has learned to defend himself and he doesn't want to fail ever. Um, he is uh, one of the main characters. There's also Jude, who has been raised very differently and has a dream that humans and the other inhabitants of this planet might actually one day not kill each other. Um, <laughs> and then there's Nyx, who is a wonderful character who feels like she can actually hear the moon of this planet speaking to her, which she knows is weird. Um, <laughs> she she is in love with her best friend, Dahlia, who doesn't know. Um, there's also Brayden, who has is like the son of an upper government official military person. Um, and he just like wants to get out from under her shadow. So they all are coming from very different places. Um, and they all find each other when I, an attack on the major city puts everything they know into jeopardy. So it is, like I said, it's inclusive. Um, there are people of color on the page. There's The characters are all different. Like there's a trans character and there's queer characters and there's a deaf character. And I mean, it's just like all of the inclusivity that you could want is right here, really beautifully rendered. Um, it's gotten crazy praise from a ton of people, including Meredith Russo, Alexandra Duncan, like 
it, it, Marie Lu, like it, it's it, there's a lot of there's a lot of accolades for this book. I'm like looking, and there's like three pages of blurbs for this book. <laughs> um, so yes, and um, the author Tristina is uh, she's bisexual herself. She's an advocate for the LGBTQIA movement and also those with anxiety disorders and physical disabilities, which she has. So it's an own voices book in that respect. And yeah, it, it like so that's a lot of stuff. It's also just one of the most fun space sci-fi YAs I've read in a really long time. So cosine all of the <laughs> praise for this book. So that's 27 Hours by Tristina Wright. And like as the title would imply, it all takes place within oh, yeah. 27 hours, yes. which is the per- a period of nighttime on this planet. So it's like super fast paced and everything is happening and you're just like nail biter. Yeah. Oh, so and good. fair warning, it is the first in a series. So mm-hmm. the ending, you're like, <laughs> oh God, when will I get the next book? Like it's... <laughs> That's right. You could wait two years like me and Jen. <laughs> I know. It's going to be a minute. Okay. Uh, speaking of books that are more on the fun side, my next recommendation is the first and probably only romance in translation that I have read. I found one um, thanks to the insiders. It is All In, which is the first in the Only One Night series by Simona Arnstedt. Uh, Tara Chase is the translator and Kensington is the publisher, who are not exactly a small press, but that's okay. Um mm. It is it is interesting because I did not know that it was going to appeal to me because it is about like corporate finance. <laughs> the hero is a corporate raider named David Hammer and he is out to like take down this giant financial institution in Sweden. Like they're like the, you know, old guard and like the biggest company in Sweden. And he wants, he's like an upstart and he wants to take them down. Um, And he is trying to get a member of the board on his side. So he goes out to lunch with one of the family who own the business, Natalia, who actually is sort of, she's not working for the family company. She's trying to prove herself because her father is like, a misogynist jerk and doesn't believe that women belong in corporate finance. So she has had to make her own way, even though she has like a lot of privileges and, you know, family money and backing, but like her father doesn't believe that she can do things. And so she is working on her own. So they have lunch and they should not, obviously they should not work because he's trying to take down her family company. She can't know that. Um, She knows that he's like some upstart. She like doesn't know why he wants to have lunch with her. She's confused. Um, But they're very attracted to each other and things unfold from there. And it was a really interesting experience reading a non-US or UK romance novel. First of all, it felt longer. Like there were there was it, it, there was more plot. It felt like um, than <laughs> a lot plot. of like particularly the regencies that I've read. Like they tend to be on the shorter side. Um, and this one was longer. And you also got perspectives that weren't part of a romance, which really surprised me. Like you got POV characters who were not part of the central romance. Like they were adjacent to it, but not part of it, um, which was really interesting. And yeah, I found it, I found it good. Like I, I read the whole thing. I needed to know what happened. The romance was very steamy. There's actually also like a B plot romance. Um, and there were a few moments where I was unsure if the word choice, which I found regrettable. There was like a couple word choices. I was like, mm, no. Um, but I didn't know if they were in the original or in the translation. So I have no idea like who to blame for that. But um, 
Yeah. So there were a few moments where I was like, I would not know. That's not how I would have said that. Um, but otherwise, it was very enjoyable. I really, I will be reading the rest of the series in all likelihood. Um, and it, it was just interesting to think about, like, because when you think about translation, you think about capital L literature, right? Like you think about, you know, Melville House and you think about like, you know, Samantha Schweblin and like serious, you know, experimental fiction. But you don't often think about like, you know, genre. Um, and so that was a really, that was a cool moment for me. And I read very few translated books also is the thing I discovered. So, so that's All In by Simona Arnstadt, translated by Tara Chase. Okay, keeping the genre train yeah. rolling here. Uh, my next pick is A Murder in Time by Julie McElwain, which is the first book in the Kendra Donovan mystery series, um, which is published by Pegasus Books, which is an independent publisher. Um, and I, I loved this book so much. Uh, Kendra Donovan is an FBI agent who is brilliant and beautiful, of course, all of those things. Um, and she is trying to forge a path for her career in a, you know, a career that's very dominated by dudes and all that. And so at the beginning of the book, her professional success kind of goes off the rails during a raid where that she's helped orchestrate where half of her team is murdered and there's a mole in the FBI uh, and she gets really, really severely wounded. And then after her recovery, she goes rogue and like just decides that she's going to go to England, find the man who's responsible for the death of her team and just, you know, Kill him, <laughs> as one does. So she leaves. She goes to England. She goes undercover um, it, at this big castle called Aldrich Castle, um, where she is pretending to be a servant in a, well, an actor playing a servant in like a living history party. Like somebody's throwing up a dinner party at this castle and all of the servants are expected to dress in like period dress and all that. So she's dressed like a servant from that time. And while she is setting up this plot to assassinate this guy who's going to be attending the party, she becomes the target of an assassin herself. And she flees into a stairwell, um, like a, a hidden stairwell that she discovers while she's trying to get out with her life. And when she comes out, she's in the same place, but she's in the year 1815. <laughs> and so she's dressed like, like, a, like a servant from 1815, and she stumbles into the duke who lived there during that time period, into his study while he is sitting there, like by the fire. And so she has to pretend that she was a lady's maid hired to help with weekend guests. Um, and she has to really quickly, like immediately thinking on her feet, um, figure out when she is not where she is, but when she is and how she got there and pretend like keep up the ruse. Um, cause she's pretty sure that if she says, Oh, I'm from the future, they will kill her. <laughs> like pretend she's like, think she's a witch or something. And so, uh, while she's there trying to figure out how to get home or get home back to her, her, the modern day, um, one of the servant girls is murdered and she uses her skills as an FBI agent to solve the murder. Um, but while pretending to not be a brilliant, well-trained forensic scientist in a time <laughs> when forensic science was not real <laughs> and like women were not allowed to attend autopsies and also autopsies weren't a thing that happened. So like, there's a lot of things, there's like layers to the difficulties that she's facing here. Um, there's a tiny little subplot of a romance, but that's really much, very much so on the side. It's just a fun time travel murder mystery with a super, super smart Sherlock Holmesian kind of brain, um, but a woman and not a jerk, which is always a thing I appreciate. So that's A Murder in Time by Julie McElwain. I'm just thinking about FBI time travel, which is not a combo you see very often. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's good. 
All right, so my next pick is, in a move that will surprise no one, a sci-fi novel called Elysium by Jennifer Marie Brissett. It is published by Aqueduct Press, which does genre fiction and which has only recently been on my radar. And it is amazing. It is so strange. Um, it It's another one that's really hard to describe. So it's starts off where you are sort of, you know that you're in this dystopian future. Everything is terrible. Um, they're really, actually, it's not dystopian because there really isn't even a government. Like, it's just a disaster zone. Um, and you're in a city that is, you know, it reminded me of New York, but I'm not sure that it actually is New York. It could have been any major city. Um, the buildings are all just, like, bombed out shells of themselves. There's dangers around every corner. Everybody is scavenging. Like, that's the experience that you're kind of dropped into. And um, you are following, you know, people who are in some way in like in a relationship. I'm being very vague here because it switches around a bit. And that's part of the twist to the book. So I don't want to give it away. But anyway, you follow people who love each other in some way. So maybe it's like a parent and child relationship. Maybe they are in love with each other, like romantically. It, it, it varies. And there's this sort of overarching computer program that, like, is in the atmosphere of, of the planet. Um, and it was supposed to, like, help save the world and did not. Um, and all of this sort of links together. And it's it moves around in time but not space. So you're always in the same city, but you're in different moments from the, like, it's all our future. But it's different moments in that city's sort of future history and I I I was so compelled by the relationships in this book and that's what makes it work like it is a really high it's an incredibly high concept novel and it is not clear for a while what is going on and like what the conceit of the structure of the book is but it doesn't it didn't matter to me because the characters were so compelling and the dialogue was so good and I just needed to know what was happening with these people no matter which people it was or what else was going around them like I was so sucked in by her characters I just couldn't put it down um I have since gotten at least two other people <laughs> to read this book both of whom loved it um but it is it's not an easy one right like it doesn't it's like even if you think about like nine fox gambit like that at least you know you move in a somewhat linear plot even if the world itself is so inexplicable this is like not even that kind of linear like it moves around a lot and it takes some willingness to just go with it um but it is so rewarding and it's not that long it's like 200 pages and they're just 200 perfect pages um it was nominated for the locus award for best first novel oh yeah it's a debut also <laughs> which boggles my mind um it won the philip k dick award it was on the james Chip tree honor list like it other people besides me have also supported this book and I just really want to see it get more readers I think the author Jennifer Marie Brissett is going to do something amazing next and I can't wait to see what it is she's written a lot of short fiction but as far as I'm aware this is her only novel and I just like I need her to do more I need it uh so that is Elysium by Jennifer Marie Brissett 
Okay. Um, my next pick is Beyond the Rice Fields by Navo, um, and it's translated by Alison M. Charette, and it's from Restless Books. And this is the first novel out of Madagascar to be translated into English. Ooh. I think it was originally written in French. And this is a difficult book. And I don't mean, like, content-wise. I mean, like, it's there's a lot of footnotes and appendices. There's a lot of historical stuff that you're probably going to have to Google. Um and the translation leaves a lot of um, I don't know how to say the, I don't remember the the language that they're speaking. It's not it's not French, but the um, place names and some of the names of like the food and the the dances that they do and things that like that leaves them intact, obviously because they're like proper nouns. Um, but in the context, they're difficult to figure out what it is. So I did a lot of like I just bookmarked the appendix because there is a language guide in the back, which is super helpful. What I'm saying is, if you like school, if you are the sort of person <laughs> who enjoyed school, you will enjoy the experience of reading this book. And I did. It, it reminded me a lot of reading Tolstoy. You know how you have to like constantly be referring to like the family trees at the back of War and Peace and like all the historical stuff that makes no sense when you're reading War and Peace. How you have to keep going back and being like, when did that happen? I don't remember that. Um, so that there's a lot of that happening here. But I enjoy that kind of thing, so it was fine with me. But so. <laughs> Um, so it follows a kind of a, a, a dual narrative of a, a girl named Farah and her father's slave, Sito, who has uh, who her father purchased when his village was destroyed. And like, um, so Sito and Farah kind of grow up together with her mother um, and her grandmother. And um, you follow them as they, from when they're pretty young, I think like 10, until they get to be young adults and then a little bit older. And they have their interpersonal dramas and their dramas with like, there's a lot of familial drama. There's a lot of drama with other kids um, and then young adults and then adults uh, in the village that they live in. And so all of that is happening. You've got a lot of like interpersonal relationship stuff going on, but it's told against this backdrop of um, Christian missionaries from England arriving and, uh, on the island of Madagascar and French industrialists arriving and realizing that there are a lot of resources that they could exploit. Um, and then what happens to the country because of those things. And so that, that big overarching story of like the awful things that Christian missionaries did, um, in Madagascar is told through the perspective of these two kids who are just like living their life, <laughs> you know, and Sido is trying to purchase his freedom and he's in love with Farah and he's trying to like create a family there. Um, and he learns to read and is given a lot of responsibilities in the village. So he's like growing into a really respected kind of person, even though he is a slave. Um, and all of that is happening while like there's a missionary in the village who is completely dismissive of their, you know, tradition of their cultural traditions. Um, and there's a lot of violence. It is very, it is a very violent book. It doesn't start that way, but it gets increasingly violent as the book carries on. Um, and so, yeah, I like, it's, it's just fascinating. I, I have this, as I'm sure you can tell, kind of uh, weakness for historical fiction from places that I've never been and will probably never get to. Um, and this Madagascar is definitely that. <laughs> I have never been and will probably never go to Madagascar, but it was just fascinating. And um, telling the, the story of like the, the island's colonialist history and the invasion of missionaries and all the terrible like things they wrought on this culture was uh, through the point of view of two kids. I just really enjoyed that because you got to see like how whole their existence was before all of that stuff just came and like ripped up their um their society um so yeah i really i again it's another situation where like fever dream where i can't say i enjoyed it because the content is like difficult but um it was very engaging i guess i'll put it that way so that's beyond the rice fields by navo
Um, okay, so my last pick is The Hottest Dishes of the Tartar Cuisine by Alina Bronsky, which is a novel in translation. Um, it is published by Europa Pre- Editions, excuse me, Europa Editions, who are distributed by Penguin but not owned by them. So that's another thing that can happen is where like a small press will get distribution from a bigger one, but they still are independent financially. So this book was such a surprise to me when I read it um, back in the bookstore, my bookstore days. It is about a horrible woman <laughs> named Rosa who is nasty and manipulative and wily and she's terrible to her daughter. And her daughter, who is 17 at the book's beginning, gets pregnant and she like tries to like get her to not keep the baby and then the baby's born and Rosa decides that well you know since the baby's here she's going to take over and she sort of like tries to sideline Sophia who's the baby's actual mother and like raise Aminat uh, as like her own daughter while she like in an attempt to get a better daughter um she's just the worst she's the worst and it's so somehow it's so compelling and like funny and weird and awful things happen like really Rosa is terrible um and she decides that so they want to leave Russia they live in Russia um and she wants to get out of Russia and so Aminat when she's a teenager this is the granddaughter sort of catches the eye of like this very sleazy German cookbook writer Rosa kind of like dangles her in front of him as like part of getting them out of the Soviet Union like it's like she like she's she's horrible um and she doesn't she doesn't learn anything. She doesn't become a better person. Like the book ends and she's happy, but like it's not because she's better. Like in fact she remains terrible forever. Um but I just was so sucked in and I was so drawn along by the internal logic of the book and like it just it's just really weirdly readable um I even I sent this book to my mom with a note saying like thanks for being an actually good mom and nothing like Rosa (laughs) for Mother's Day one year I was like here's your Mother's Day book also, P.S., thank you for not being this woman. <laughs> um, and it's just really, I don't know, it was a reading experience that like, I haven't really had since and hadn't really had before of just a completely terrible, unreliable, nasty narrator who you cannot look away from. Uh, so that's The Hottest Dishes of the Tartar Cuisine by Alina Bronsky, translated by Tim Moore. And that's our show. Huzzah! <laughs> Thank you very much for joining us for our centennial edition of Jen and Amanda Talk About Whatever (laughs) (laughs) which was a lot of fun for me. Um, So yeah, thanks for listening. Please go leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It makes the show easier for other people to find when they're searching for it. Thank you so much to our sponsors uh, because I was a girl in 27 hours. Um, So go check those out. You can find us on social media. I'm on Instagram at I'm Amanda Nelson. Jen is... I'm on Tumblr. Uh, It's jenirl.tumblr.com and that's Jen with two N's. And we will be back next week uh, with our regularly scheduled programming. (laughs) 